All right, let's bow our heads. Dear Heavenly Father, we thank you again for another day, another grace gift, another chance to gather together as your children. Help us, Father, to not take this thing for granted. Help us to relish it and see it as an opportunity to be sanctified and set apart and even to celebrate your love and your plan. Father, we thank you most of all for your son, Jesus Christ. We ask that you help us keep our first love. Help us always remember the magnitude of what he's done for us and the unexplainable love that you displayed on the cross. Father, we ask that you bless this message. Have your spirit guide the speaker. Have your spirit Help each of us understand what we need to know tonight. And we ask these things in Christ's precious name, by the power of your Spirit. Amen. All right, the Great Commission to Love. We're going to start this way this evening on the board with John 15, 13. Jesus said, Greater love has no one than this, that one lay down his life, for his friends. Quite a high calling when you think about it. But please keep this statement of our Lord in mind as we go through this particular message. As we note the whole of the Great Commission, as the Spirit brought out on Sunday. And what a shame it is when we don't finish the sentence. When we even take scriptures out of context. What a disservice to God and His Word that that is. And I want to give you a, a little example here, as we're on the Great Commission right now. Some pastors and teachers, including myself in the past, skip over the part about water baptism in the Great Commission in Matthew 28. And at the time, I thought I was right in doing so, but looking back on it, who was I to do that thing? And who is any pastor or teacher to pick and choose like that and take things out of context? How can we not read the whole of what's said in context and simply follow his commands, asking the Spirit for understanding on how it applies to our lives? We do it. The flesh gets in the way. We hyper-doctrinalize. We hyper-categorize. We want to be in control of everything. So we have to cut things up to make sure that they're neat and we're not insecure about anything. But that's man's heart. That's not God's heart. So go again to Matthew 28, verse 18. And we're going to complement what we heard on Sunday about seeing the whole and living in the whole of the Great Commission. Matthew 28:18. And Jesus came up and spoke to them saying, "All authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. Go therefore and make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I commanded you. 
And lo, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. You know, it's a, it's a funny thing what a great relief it is to just obey God's commands without, you know, hemming and hawing. Uh, even the baptism on Sunday, it's like a, it's like a uh, breath of fresh air. I don't know how to describe it, but it, just to obey God's commands clearly without, you know, hesitating, without questioning everything, just do it. And such beautiful things like Sunday's baptism came out. Um, for the people involved and the witnesses and who knows who else. But our main emphasis on the board on Sunday was that the Great Commission also includes teaching them to observe all that I commanded you. Finish the sentence. Jesus sent his disciples who were both saved and further educated to make more disciples to save them and educate them. Merely evangelizing does not complete the Great Commission. I thought it was a, you know, a wonderful point to Spirit put on on Sunday because we stop. You know, we stop at the end of one sentence, right? We stop at the comma, as Pastor was saying. And we say, okay, that's it. I can do, I can do that part. And we fail to look at the big picture or the whole picture. And Pastor gave us a good analogy on Sunday of a shepherd finding a lost sheep, apparently a sheep without a shepherd, wandering around in the wilderness, and therefore no love and guidance was in the life of that little sheep. And a shepherd came up to that little sheep and said, don't worry, I'll take care of you, you're with me now. And the lost sheep feels secure, gets a great night's sleep, knowing its shepherd is there for him. But then the sheep wakes up in the morning and finds that the shepherd is long gone. And that's a picture of what it is like to go out and evangelize someone and then leave them. They might actually be saved. Leave them to their own devices in the devil's world without any encouragement or any advice on the next steps to take, etc. So what a shame that is, really. And you could see why the Lord completed the sentence in his command, why he finished it off. So regarding the Great Commission to love, if someone responds positively to the gospel, whether they are just seeking or actually become a believer, we must take them under our wing as a privileged personal assignment from the Lord who is with you always. And that's just something else to think about. You know, Jesus is with you always. He's there when you're evangelizing someone. He's there when you're leaving somebody and not following through. He's there, and he wants you to follow through. He's there supporting, but he's also there witnessing what you do and how you obey. So again, if someone responds positively to the gospel, whether they're just seeking or actively or actually become a believer, we must take them under our wing and look at it, his perspective again, Look at it as a privileged, personal assignment from the Lord. God put that person in your path. How much more serious does it get than that? There are no coincidences in life. You must consider it a divine appointment or a divine assignment, a privileged, personal assignment from the Lord who is with you always. 
So think about it, how exciting it is to find a sheep that actually wants the guidance. Isn't that like one of the best things and you might pray for that and crave that and you wonder when, when you're gonna get someone who's positive and wants to, wants to learn? Well, you know, part of our problem in the past is not going out in the first place. Well, like when's God gonna bring someone to me, right? I wanna nurture somebody, I wanna teach somebody, I wanna help somebody. And we keep sitting on our couch waiting for someone to knock on the door saying, God told me to knock on your door. So now as we go out in the Great Commission, as we obey in whatever our areas of life are, now we're going to get more opportunities that we've been craving all along just by obeying, just by going out. And you're going to find more and more people that want the guidance, that need the guidance, that you can even see it in their eyes, even if they don't verbalize that they want the guidance. Because there are a lot of lost hurting people out there. So look at this person as someone that God has placed in your path personally. Look at them as a personal assignment and your job is to love and keep them for the Lord to whatever degree you're led. So again, we're noting what the Great Commission wholly includes as we finish the sentence. Again on the board, make disciples teaching them to observe all that I commanded you. Jesus sent his disciples, who were both saved and further educated, to make more disciples, save and educate them also. Merely evangelizing does not complete the Great Commission. Now, one thing I want you to see that hit me on Sunday also is Jesus said to teach them, quote, all that I commanded you, right? All that I commanded you. All who commanded? Jesus himself. We are not called to just study the church letters from Romans to Jude, as some would say. We are to go to him for the commands and answers. His words, his life, which are found in the four Gospels. How do we know that? Look what Jesus said again. Teach them to observe all that I commanded you. Does it say teach them to observe what the apostles command? Does it say teach them to observe what you think is right? I mean, who's the source of life? Who's the source of the gospel? Obviously, the one and only Lord God and Savior. And to omit the gospels... It's a crazy thing when I look back on it. But we're not called to just study the church letters. He says, teach others what I commanded you. And who is he? The one with all authority in verse 18? The one given all authority in heaven on earth as a man now, not just as God? He says, teach them what I've commanded. And what's funny is the church letters if we read them in context, they're simply supporting and re-emphasizing what Jesus taught the apostles directly. The apostles are re-submitting, re re-enforcing, uh, restating things in the, in the four Gospels. And yet we miss that. And we try to hyper-doctrinalize and hyper-categorize. So again, on the board regarding the Great Commission... The church letters 
are really the apostles obeying Jesus' words. Teach them to observe all that he commanded. That's what the letters really illustrate. So again, that's one thing the Spirit hit me with on Sunday. Jesus, he is the author of the gospel, and he commands us to teach others all that he commanded. So back to our main point at the end of the Great Commission here, teaching them to observe all that I commanded, Jesus was basically saying, don't leave new believers out to dry. And if we know his love for us, how could we do that? If, if you're a believer and you, you understand and know his love for you, how can we leave others out to dry that want more? All right, I'm not talking about the person that you you give the gospel to and they walk away like, eh, you're crazy. They, they're not ready yet. They don't want the help, right? But what about someone that responds positively in some way? How can we leave them high and dry? If we do, I would dare to say we're not operating in Christ's love. The Lord certainly provided for us, not leaving us alone, but guiding us to an under-shepherd, to a pastor, The Lord didn't leave us alone. So we humbly learn his plan for us because God was gracious and God even used another person maybe to bring you to the right place to learn the word of God. If teaching others is part of the Great Commission, which it clearly is, then what must we consider doing after evangelizing someone? Well, how about simply showing them some love. It's not complicated. It's not a script. There's not five steps to become a good believer. How about just showing them some love and care and giving them guidance and direction? They are now possibly your brother or sister in Christ. And they especially are the ones Jesus said to lay down our lives for. So think about it this way on the board. The Great Commission to Love. When you have evangelized someone, you have a child of God placed in your temporary custody. You have a spiritual infant in your hands. Listen, I don't care if they're some 300-pound football player. When they believe in Christ for the first time, you have a spiritual infant in your hands. Don't judge by the appearance, right? You have a spiritual infant in your hands, and that child needs your love and guidance. So they don't wander aimlessly in the spiritual wilderness. And tell me that's not a good description of what the world is right now. It's a spiritual wilderness with all these different spirits pulling at people, being attacked by spiritual wolves who pull them away from Christ. So again, when you have evangelized someone, You have a child of God placed in your temporary custody. You have a spiritual infant in your hands. And that child needs your love and guidance so they don't wander aimlessly in the spiritual wilderness, being attacked by spiritual wolves who pull them away from Christ. We're in a battle, people. The spiritual war is so ugly. It's carnage. See, we don't see it, so we don't always see it. 
So we don't think it's happening. We don't think it's there. We don't think it's so evil. But there's a lot of pure evil tugging at people. So we, as believers in Christ, can follow up with people and nurture them and help them find a Bible, for example. Help them find a shepherd. If not here, at some other place near them that teaches the word. And one thing I'm learning more and more as I share the gospel with people is to not rely on the salvation track. All right, the, the track is a pamphlet. Okay, if you're not sure what I'm talking about. But the ones in the back, for example, I'm learning more and more, don't rely on that piece of paper. It's a nice supplement. If someone maybe says, I don't really want to talk about that now, but I'll read that at home, wonderful. But instead of handing it out first, how about handing it out last? How about, how about having a conversation with somebody, like a heart-to-heart? Just be real. And when they respond positively, we must show them where to find spiritual water and food. Otherwise, they will starve in this world and be deceived by the kingdom of darkness. And this is your brother we're talking about. So on the board regarding new converts, we saw this on Sunday. The truly converted will have a thirst for truth, a hunger for it. A false profession will not produce the same results. To leave one of God's children starving is to violate the Great Commission. To disobey the second half of it. We ought to help them find a place to be fed. Example, Ephesians 4, 11 through 12. God has provided gifts, teachers, pastors, etc. to equip the saints. And we have the inside track as believers. I mean, again, imagine yourself, maybe you personally have been through this, maybe you never exactly went through this, but imagine a new believer who just heard about Jesus Christ or just accepted him, just realized who he really is, and they accept him in their heart. They have no idea what to do next. Maybe they don't want to go back to the church they maybe grew up in because of the legalism. They're like, what? You know, like, it, they may not verbalize this to you, but they really have no idea what God wants them to do next. So we have the privilege of stepping in and helping them be fed. God, our Father, is also their Father. And He wants you to take a special interest in His own children and in your brother. So as the Spirit reminded us on Sunday, also, if you don't at least have the base desire to look after others in the faith, then you might have a problem in your soul. Because so much of the scriptures say that love is a major indication that someone is a believer in Christ, that someone's heart has been changed by the Lord at salvation. Go again to 1 John 2.9, and let's see this reminder And this, by no means does this mean anybody is perfect or fully possesses God's love, which is really an impossibility in this life. 
but it's saying it's a characteristic present in the believer. 1 John 2.9 The one who says he is in the light and yet hates his brother is in the darkness until now. I mean, if you don't care about your brother, if you're indifferent, think of how selfish that is and where does that selfishness come from? If you have no love of, uh, of God, no love of Christ, something's wrong. Verse 10, the one who loves his brother abides in the light and there is no cause for stumbling in him. But the one who hates his brother is in the darkness and walks in the darkness and does not know where he's going because the darkness has blinded his eyes. On the board, the great commission to love. With the love of Christ in our hearts, to whatever degree we've been given, we are to care for one another, especially our fellow believers. That's what came out on Sunday. And so it makes sense the Lord would follow up his command to go and make disciples with baptizing them, with teaching them all that he commands. He's basically saying, show them their family. I mean, this is something special here. This is something new. This is something real. Show them their family. Show them the love that exists in God's family. Take them under your wing. Help them get baptized. By doing that, you show them that you care for them with his love. And teach them the Lord, Lord's commands. By doing that, you show them that you're taking an interest in them, an interest in their well-being. You're showing them Christ's love. And by the way, we can baptize someone at any time. You know, we're not like in bondage to doing this once a year thing or something. And in fact, to obey the scriptures, new believers should be baptized right away. So why not evangelize someone? And when, when, if someone says they're in, I've accepted him, I see the light, say, you know what, you need to get baptized. Why don't you come down to our church? We'll, we'll set a date and do it. Oh, let's go to a river. I don't care. Let's go do it. You can baptize anybody. Anybody can baptize anybody. In obedience. You're a child of the king. You can represent him. So you're showing them love. You're showing them uh, that you're interested in their well-being. That you want them to prosper in God's plan and get out of the world's schemes before they get trapped again. So you may remember our points from the Giving the Gospel special series a couple weeks ago, and here's just a couple reminders regarding showing the love of God. Why do you think the Lord and his disciples fed and healed so many people throughout his ministry? Why wasn't it always simply preaching the gospel alone and then moving on to the next crowd? Was it to show and prove the love God has for us to open up the hearts of men to the gospel. As we talked about, people need to see the proof of our faith. They're tired of hypocrites. And the thing that speaks louder than our words is our loving actions. Blows it away. So in essence, when a man is shown 
such acts of love, he begins to say in his heart, he really does love me. He really does care for me. This doesn't make sense because he doesn't even know me, but I can see this is real. There's nothing like the fruit. Showing the love of God, we know also the doubting hearts that we as human beings can have. And the Lord knew our weakness and in grace fed us what we needed to open our hearts to the love of God. Each one of us, he fed us each what we needed at the right time. Maybe it wasn't physical food. Maybe it was. Maybe you were starving. I don't know. But either way, he, he fed us what we needed by grace. And we can do the same for others. He allows us to be that conduit to stand between him and the unbeliever and to pass on his love. So this is true while evangelizing and then also in guiding and teaching the new believer. God's love should be at the forefront of all we do because that is the center of a life with God. If there's anything we've learned that has permeated all of our lessons the last year, even more, is that God's love is at the center of it all. The greatest of these is love, and love never fails. Again, on the board, what we started with, John 15, 13, greater love has no one than this, that one lay down his life for his friends. So you've got to understand something, and you've got to accept something. Look what it says, that one lay down his life. It's going to involve sacrifice, everybody. And I've resisted this for years, even as an evangelist. I'm like, I'll go this far, but I'm not going that far. I'll help the person this much, but I'm not going that far because I know what's going to happen. They're going to demand my time, my money, my talent. They're going to be pulling at me. Maybe. Some are more needy than others. But isn't that the great purpose for our lives? I mean, these people are lost, just like you and I were lost. And so we have to accept the fact that it's going to involve sacrifice. It's not going to be all about us and our tidy little lives anymore. So we each have to reconcile that with God individually. Maybe you're not ready. Fine. But that's what love does. And your own time and energy and money at times will be sapped. But that's what true love does. It doesn't care about self. Go to Galatians 6 verse 10 once again. especially believers, especially for believers, even if they're brand new, and especially if they're brand new. Galatians 6.10. So then, while we have the opportunity, let us do good to all people, and especially to those who are of the household of faith. While we have opportunity... Remember that series on time, or those lessons on time? 
and how limited it is and how it's your turn right now, well, while you have opportunity, because it's not going to be for long, folks, I don't care how young you are, how long you think you're going to live, while you have opportunity, do good to all people, especially those of the household of faith. So God desires that you take special notice of his own family. And may you never forget, one of God's family took special interest in you one day. I would think that's for most of us. We can think of one or two people that took special interest in us and guided us along, even though we were this new fish out of water, flopping around. But people led you to Christ. God used people to lead you to Christ. And they tried to nurture you in the word as feeding a child that needs milk to live. And God, by his grace, will give us the same opportunity with others that someone else had with us. That person that we're so thankful to right now, he'll give us that opportunity to be that person. So let us invite them to the table to dine on the very bread of life with us. Bring them to church. Um, maybe do a, you know, a little Bible session with them over coffee. Maybe show them the website. Don't just tell them about the website, but maybe show them the website. You know, go to their home or go on the computer with them, whatever, and show them how it works and show them how easy it is. See, again, it's like a child. Can a child do anything like that on its own? I mean, we know people can go to a website on their own. Okay, that's not what I'm saying. I think you know what I'm saying. Nurture them. Lead them by the hand. Because guess what? When they go home and that favorite TV series is on, they're not going on the website. And they're going to forget the website. Whatever, whatever you're led to do, nurture them. Bring them to the table to dine on the bread of life with us. Invite them to the table. And this especially includes the poor the weak, the sick, the lame, those less fortunate. The Bible says they're the ones deserving more honor. And that's what God's love does. So who do we honor? We believers need to change our perspective. We, especially in America, have been trained by the world to honor the beautiful and the rich. And we've been wrong. 1 Corinthians 12 tells us that. We've been wrong. We've been really wrong. Like out of line wrong. We must each reconcile this in our own souls. We must repent before God that we've been wrong in this area. You know, talk about showing bias and partiality. Well, this is a major way even the Bible describes people doing it. Partiality to the rich. Well, you can do all this in your head day to day. We do this in our head day to day. Maybe we don't see them in the church necessarily or, or physically one-on-one -on -one show somebody partiality, but in your head as you're worshiping your idols in the world, you're doing the same exact thing. And we've been wrong. We've been putting these people on a pedestal. And what does God's word say? Like almost everything else, his ways are opposite of our ways. He's like, don't show special honor to the beautiful and rich. Show special honor to the poor and the weak. 
we've been out of line and been deceived by the kingdom of darkness to prioritize the wrong people. The Bible says if we are to prioritize anyone, it's those in the greatest need and in the most humbling circumstances. Enter the new believer. What do we do with a new believer? Maybe even someone on the street that's humbled themselves before Christ and turned to Christ for salvation. What do we do with them? Well, they're a child without milk, without food, without water. What would you do? Leave them on somebody's doorstep? Or would you take them in? By supernatural creation, that person, regardless of their status or their situation in life, they're now a member of the body of Christ. And how do we treat members of the body, especially those in need? Go to 1 Corinthians 12, verse 20. We need to stop judging by the appearance. We all do it. If someone's beautiful, if someone's more kept up, has a better appearance, if someone speaks better, if someone's, I don't know, whatever, whatever is more attractive to you in a person. Well, we fall into a trap, a worldly trap of giving them more honor. But look at how we should treat members of the body, especially those in need. 1 Corinthians 12, 20. But now there are many members, but one body. And the eye cannot say to the hand, I have no need of you. Or again, the head to the feet, I have no need of you. On the contrary, it is much truer that the members of the body, which seem to be weaker, are necessary. Look at that phrase, on the contrary. Doesn't that mean, turn around here, the opposite is true? On the contrary, it's much truer that the members of the body, which seem to be weaker, are necessary. And those members of the body which we deem less honorable, on these we bestow more abundant honor. And our less presentable members become much more presentable, whereas our more presentable members have no need of it. But God has so composed the body, giving more abundant honor to that member which lacked. Who did that? God. God so composed the body, giving more abundant honor to that member which lacked, so that there may, may, may be no division in the body, but that the members may have the same care for one another. And if one member suffers, all the members suffer with it. If one member is honored, all the members rejoice with it. So what's your view towards the less honorable? I mean, be honest in your own soul. What's your view towards the less presentable members of the body of Christ? Do you need to pray for the Lord to change your perspective and to change your heart on this? I know I have. I've had to repent and humble myself before him. And, you know, it's something God hates. God hates partiality. How much more so when we dishonor those that are in need? So we've been wrong. Um, we've accepted this type of thinking for years, especially in our country, even if unknowingly, because we've been so trained 
by the world system to honor the beautiful and the rich. So in humility, you know, we need to turn to God and be different. We need to be like, I'm not going to be like the world. When all my friends, quote unquote, let's say those who don't really honor God, worship somebody, some celebrity in Hollywood or whatever, you know, we need to turn our back on that. Maybe even as an example, but we need to not go along with it. That's for sure. And continue living in deception that God has asked us to leave behind. So we repent and ask his forgiveness and for him to change our hearts in this area. And so we need to lead new lambs into the fold, regardless of stature or appearance. We need to show them a home and a family that they belong to the family of Christ now. They don't half belong. They belong. They're adopted children. Just like Christ had dinner with the prostitutes and the tax collectors. They belong to the family once they accept Christ, where they can then learn and be loved as a fragile infant in Christ. So the local church steps in there. And again, most converts are already addicts addicted to the world system. For years, they've been intoxicated by it, just like you and I in the past have been intoxicated by it. Just because a person gets clean by salvation, all right, in this analogy, the detox program, it doesn't mean they're no longer tempted. It doesn't mean Satan's not knocking at the door trying to pull them away right away. Recovered addicts require support programs. Spiritual addicts require churches to stay away from the spiritual wolves. And Satan would love nothing more than for us to leave new converts by the roadside to fend for themselves. He hates it when we feed God's sheep. And everybody in this room has the ability to feed God's sheep, to guide them in the right direction, to open up a Bible with somebody. Everybody. The new convert is actually looking for and craving someone who cares, who will love them with Christ's love. Not just hearing about Christ's love and accepting the gospel, but seeing it live in action. And that's real. And even if they aren't willing to say it, they need it and they're craving it. They know it in their hearts, even if they're not able to put it into words. And remember, listen, a new convert might be so weak spiritually, they can't put it into words. They don't know what to ask you for. Right? They're a lost sheep. I mean, picture being dazed and confused, you know, picture... I don't know, getting hit on the head, and you got a concussion. You're like, I don't know where I'm going. I'm stumbling all over the place. All right, take my arm. Let's go this way, because this is a safe way. I mean, that's what's happening with a new believer. They're disoriented spiritually. They found the light. Now we have the privilege to lead them into the path. So, the Great Commission to love again. Therefore, it's our job as loving members of Christ to reach out and go, um, go out of our way. To reach out and go out of our way. To ask them what we can do. And to offer our services to them. 
freely and not make them beg, quote-unquote, for help, so to speak. Hope you know what I mean by that. You come back to the church, oh, I evangelized somebody. All right, good. Did you lead them anywhere? Oh, well, they didn't ask. Huh. Maybe they didn't know to ask. Maybe you ran away too quickly. You're like, I got to run. I don't want to invest in you right now. But people, when you give the gospel, they see Christ's unconditional love in you, and they want that. And you and I have the power and the, the availability to give it freely, like no strings attached, to the point where people will say to you, why are you loving me? Maybe not those exact words, but why are you loving me? Why are you doing this? And that's what changes people's lives. So, if we manage to evangelize someone, we need to adopt a sense of responsibility for them by accepting that God wants us to have a real relationship with them. A real relationship. I mean, handing out tracts is fine. It really is, depending on the situation. But if someone's saved, that's great. But if they have nowhere to go after or or they lost and you don't guide them, you only fulfilled half of the Great Commission. So again, the value of the local assembly comes in. The local church mission. Once a person is saved, their first objective is to keep on learning the Word of God. And again, imagine the attacks. Satan's not happy. Not happy at all. If and when we evangelize someone, we ought to encourage them to attend a sound biblical church under a sound pastor, such as North Christian Church, our relationship with new believers should not end after the gospel presentation. If it's in our power. Okay, if someone walks away, but if it's in our power, it shouldn't be ending there. And that's right, I use the word relationship on the board. Don't get scared. That's your flesh talking if you're getting scared right now. All right? This is a love relationship And through Christ, it will be beautiful and powerful. This is the beauty of unconditional love. It's not based on conditional friendships we've had in the past. So when you see the word relationship, you know, again, don't panic. Be like, oh, wait, wait, wait. This is a different kind of relationship. This is an unconditional one where there's freedom on both sides. There's not conditions placed. I don't have to worry about being hurt. That's not what this is about. It's an unconditional thing I get to pass on the unconditional love that Christ showed me, wow, freedom is going to permeate that relationship. Even though you're the one giving, you're going to be set free. So again, as came out on Sunday, this is our work. And this is our sanctification in time. To love, that's how we're sanctified. We love God by obeying His commands. And we love others. That's what sanctifies us, not memorizing the Bible. Handing out tracts is a show of love, but fostering a relationship is love. And that's why the Great Commission is to love. 
in a nutshell, I guess. But let's complete the sentence. Let's see how to love. What's the full display of love? It's verses 18 through 20, from beginning to end. Not stopping at the comma. And as we've learned over the past several months, experiential sanctification is actually being someone. It's living a certain life. It's experiencing it. Not just knowing what you're supposed to be. I don't know about you, but I'm tired of that. Knowing what you're supposed to be and then go home and just dwell on it. Forever. Like, okay, is there more to this thing? Am I missing something? Mm Mm-hmm. You're supposed to be what you claim to believe. The righteous man will live by faith. So at this point, the Spirit motivated me to go back to a passage from our Giving the Gospel series. And there were some things left unsaid from that series, and he brought them to mind as I was working on this lesson. So let's go back to 1 Corinthians 9 and see Paul's viewpoint. 1 Corinthians 9, 19. For though I am free from all men, I have made myself a slave to all, so that I may win more. To the Jews I became as a Jew, so that I might win Jews. To those who are under the law, as under the law, though not myself being under the law, so that I might win those who are under the law. To those who are without law, as without law, though not being without the law of God, but under the law of Christ, so that I might win those who are without law. To the weak I became weak, that I might win the weak. I have become all things to all men, so that I may by all means save some. I do all things for the sake of the gospel, so that I may become a fellow partaker of it. And we spent some time in that phrase, a fellow partaker of the gospel. And I don't know about you, but that sounds to me like living in the gospel reality. Like our own sanctification comes from living in and by the gospel. Again, in verse 23, I do all things for the sake of the gospel so that I may become a fellow partaker of it. Again, the Greek word for partaker means a co-participant or a sharer. The ways we partake in the gospel when we go out and share the good news are many and supernatural. The, the benefits, the, the effects on us, the experiential sanctification that takes place beyond what you can even try to describe or write down or make a list, this supernatural stuff that happens when we obey, when we go out and obey whatever the command is. That's where the rubber meets the road, and that's where God sanctifies us. And the blessings we will reap by obeying the Great Commission are way beyond what we can even ask or think. His happiness enters the picture. Not what we think makes us happy. His happiness enters the picture. 
God will see to it that you will have his peace when you obey his commands. And that includes the whole of the Great Commission, teaching them to obey what he commanded us. So again, we're called to foster relationships with other people. We're called to evangelize others and teach others the way of the Lord, the commands of the Lord. And so what did Paul do to live in the Great Commission? What did he do? Not what did he say, not what did he believe, not what did he write. What did Paul do to live in the Great Commission? To be a Jew? To the Jews. Paul decided to go hang out with the Jews, even though he was probably fed up with them. He loved them to death at the same time. We can all understand that. To be as without law, Paul decided to go out and hang with those without law. Maybe even at the local bar. Who knows? Where else do you hang with people without law? To win the weak. Paul decided to go out and hang with the weak. And even share in their weakness. You know what that means? That means discomfort. That maybe means being humiliated in front of others. That you're associating with someone so weak. That means a lot of things. But Paul's love, he had the love of Christ. It motivated him to not care about himself and to obey. What did Paul do to live in the Great Commission? He did these things. He went and hung out with people that, you know what? He could have been home having a steak dinner with the apostles. I've done my work for the day. You know, I really don't want to invest in people. I've given the gospel. It's time to rejoice. I'm going to go have some wine and cheese. and I don't know what they had exactly back then, but they had wine. But he didn't have to invest the way he did. He said, what did he say in verse 23? I do all things for the sake of the gospel. In other words, I'm not going to do anything that hurts the gospel, like make somebody stumble, like show honor to the rich and discard the poor. I'm going to do all things for the sake of the gospel. Paul decided because of Christ's love in his heart to go out and search for such people. Do you see what do you see what's happening in 1 Corinthians 9? He went out and searched for these people. He went out and actively hung out with them. Even though he probably had other people he'd rather hang out with. This is what we're called to, people, whether you want to hear it or not. That's what we're called to. It's easy to come to the church and hang with like-minded people. And so we should for training, for encouragement. But it takes uh, John 15, 13, laying down your life for your friends kind of love to go hang with those that you really don't want to hang with. But that's what Christ's love does in us. It changes us slowly, gradually, you know, different to different degrees at different times. But just look at Paul's example. That's what he did on his journeys in the book of Acts. And what we see in his letters is his persistence in following up and teaching all of the Lord's commands. Pastor and I were talking about that the other day. What, what, what's, what do you see in Paul's letters? He's following up and writing and caring for the people that he met and hopes to meet again. And he's instructing them and guiding them and loving them. 
even from afar. So on the board, Paul purposefully and from the heart went out and became all things to all men in hopes of saving some. And then when he saved them, he nurtured them. He even called them his sons, his sons in the faith. How cool would that be for you to be able to say from now to the rest of your life, forget the past, you know what, I've got three sons in the faith. I've got three daughters in the faith. That special kind of relationship that is irreplaceable and has eternal value. So on the board, you know, Paul, again, he purposefully and from the heart went out and became all things to all men in hopes of saving some. Is that our attitude? Wasn't that Christ's attitude? Didn't the Lord come to earth to seek and save the lost? The word seek means to look for. 1 Corinthians 9, what Paul did. For example, the Lord sought out Zacchaeus. There were crowds of people on the road observing Jesus, so much so that Zacchaeus, my brother, had to climb a tree to see. And there's all these people around the Lord. And the Lord sought out Zacchaeus. The Lord looked up into the tree and called him down. The Lord didn't just preach the gospel to him and leave either. When he saw the humble heart in Zacchaeus, the Lord stayed at his home. He invested in this man because he saw Zacchaeus was ready to receive the gospel. He saw the humility and the response. So here we have a picture in the Lord's life, one of many, but a picture of evangelizing and then even forming a relationship with a new believer, a new sheep. Let's read this beautiful passage again as we close. It also brings home the point of the Lord seeking and saving the lost. Go to Luke 19, verse 1. Our Lord invested in this man because he saw Zacchaeus was ready to receive the gospel. And so he did. And so he built a relationship with him. Luke 19.1 Jesus entered Jericho and was passing through. And there was a man called by the name of Zacchaeus. He was a chief tax collector and he was rich. Zacchaeus was trying to see who Jesus was and was unable because of the crowd, for he was small in stature. So he ran on ahead and climbed up into a sycamore tree in order to see him for he was about to pass through that way. When Jesus came to the place, he looked up and said to him, Zacchaeus, hurry and come down, for today I must stay at your house. And he hurried and came down and received him gladly. When they saw it, they all began to grumble, saying, he's gone to be the guest of a man who's a sinner. Zacchaeus stopped. I love that. I was reading this today. I'm like, whoa, wait a minute. Zacchaeus stopped. I don't know if that hits you the same way as it hits me, but he stopped. He stopped what he was doing, stopped in his tracks, 
even stopped his lifestyle. Why? Because he turned to the Lord from his heart. Zacchaeus stopped and said to the Lord, Behold, Lord, half of my possessions I'll give to the poor. And if I've defrauded anyone of anything, I'll give back four times as much. And Jesus said to him, Today salvation has come to this house, because he too is a son of Abraham. For the Son of Man has come to seek and to save that which was lost. Do we see how the Lord sought him, saved him, even built a relationship with him? I'm sure taught him many commands. But he stayed at his house. Again in verse 10, the Son of Man has come to seek and to save that which was lost. And in the Greek, the word seek pretty much means to seek, as we know it. But on the board, I wanted to just read the dictionary definition of seek from Merriam-Webster. It means to search for someone or something, to try to find someone or something. It also means to ask for, such as help or advice, or to try to get or achieve something. Pretty interesting definition in light of the gospel. The Lord came to seek and save that which was lost. That's what the Lord's whole life centered around. And the apostles too, who faithfully followed his example. So I'll just end with these questions. Are we too good for this? Do we think we're too good for this, to seek and save? To, like Paul, uh, become all things to all men? How about this? Are we too lazy for this? Mm. How about this? Are we too arrogant for this? It really is simple arrogance when we disobey the Lord's commands, including the Great Commission. And remember, things like self-pity and self-abasement are arrogance also. Self-abasement is like, oh, I can't do that. I'm, I'm not good enough. I'm too dumb. I'm too shy. I'm too whatever. Are we too arrogant to obey this command? We all need to humble ourselves before the Lord and obey His commands and have the attitude if Jesus says to do something, I'm going to do it because he's my Lord. I'm done playing games, hemming and pawing, being a spoiled child, a spoiled brat who likes to complain and get his own way. I'm nothing without him. And how can I disobey? How can I not follow in this beautiful, these beautiful footsteps to seek and save the lost? So as we close, the Great Commission to love. It's not all about us. It's not about us at all. It's about Him and His grace and His glory. And it's about obeying His commands without questioning them or making excuses. Out of love and gratitude for the Lord. The more love, love and gratitude we have for the Lord, the more we will just want to obey. Like, it doesn't even matter what you look like. It doesn't even matter what people are looking at you or thinking about you. 
the more you appreciate the love God has for you, the more you're just going to want to obey his commands and stop making excuses. And that's a beautiful thing. And he's doing that in all of our souls. Remember, he promised to complete the good work in us. He is right now. It's just a matter of how much we kick against the commands or how much we say, okay, I'm done. I'm ready, Lord. I'm done. Just whatever. Use me. And therein lies freedom, everybody. Who would have thought freedom is actually in obeying God's commands? And that's a very sweet thing to God the Father. So let's close in prayer. Father, we thank you so much for your patience with us, your unconditional, unfailing love toward us. We ask that you help us live in the gospel reality, Father, and become a partaker in the gospel. We ask that you help us love the brethren. Help us lay down our lives for our friends. And help us, Father, fully obey the great commission that you've called us to. Help us see it as a great honor and privilege, a great adventure even, and the greatest calling on earth. Father, we thank you so much again for your patience, your love, your grace, your mercy, your gentleness toward us. Please help us go forward in your plan and bring the good news out to a lost and dying world who needs it so desperately. We ask these things in Christ's precious name and by the power of the Holy Spirit we pray. Amen. Thank you.